Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Kenyatta Gilbert. Kenyatta is Associate Professor of Homiletics at the Howard University School of Divinity. He specializes in the history, theory, and practice of African-American preaching. He's written numerous books on the topic. He's also a good friend. We spent some time reflecting on the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I give you my friend, Kenyatta Gilbert. Kenyatta, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be back. We are uh, old friends, full disclosure, and uh, we met years ago, and we don't see each other enough, but we should, I, if we lived in the same town, I would hang out with you a lot. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You're one of the coolest guys on the planet. Mutual, the feeling's mutual, my friend. So let me ask you this. You're, you're, you teach homiletics at Howard Divinity School. That's right. A, a historically black university. I mean, you could say... I mean, you could almost use like the definitive article. I mean, right. I mean, it's the, I mean, it's probably the preeminent or one of the premier African-American institutions. Is MLK Day different this year? I mean, I don't remember since its commemoration, like waking up to every cable news channel debating whether or not the president is a racist. Right, right. So I don't remember this much vitriol in the public debate. Um since I've been alive and since I've uh, reflected on King's life. Yeah, these are very difficult times. In fact, um, I think it's wisdom to go back to King and to uh, think about some of the the things that uh, he was able to articulate to uh, move the conversation about what what does it mean to love? What does it mean to uh, respect one's uh, fellows? and so I think he's wisdom for these times. Yeah, you know, I wonder too. It, does does part of the deadlock? I read something um, a few months ago in the New Republic, and it was written by a progressive guy who was trying to talk about how you get past the sort of loggerheads on race in the country. And he said, you know, we, or at least between the right and left, he said conservatives look look at racism at the level of intention. Whereas liberals tend to look at, progressives tend to look at on outcomes. So if, if I'm like a, a, leg, a legislator in Georgia and I say, we got to cut Medicaid because the budget can't afford it, right? And, you know, I, I, and I'm, a, I'm an open-minded person. I've got friends of various races and, you know, like, it, you know, at, at, at an intentional level, you know, we're all, we're all sinners and broken people and fallible and have our prejudices, but I'm not, I don't have, you know, I don't have all these explicit prejudices driving decisions like that. So when you get called a racist, you don't understand. Whereas somebody progressive says, look, that policy could be racist because it has systemic effects on people groups. And part of the, the racism is you're, you're not even aware it has that, or that's not even part of the conversation. But it, so it seems like there's a kind of, when, when, People, Jay Gresham Machen, you know, wrote uh, uh, Christian liberalism. He said, you know, for, uh, liberals and fundamentalists use the same vocabulary but differently. So, it'd be like, if I hand you a stapler and say, "Hold my machine gun," and you're like, "Wait, I know stapler, I know machine gun, but this doesn't make sense." And it's, is there a similar kind of thing where, like, so much of the discussion about race and civil rights, it's so it's so 
uh, does it get stuck by 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 these kind of misunderstand? I mean, I wonder how that affects going forward with King's legacy. Yeah, I think I think um, it it is uh, the the conversations are very uh, confused. I think we get lost in terminology. We get lost um, in our emotions that we are not having the kinds of coalition building conversations that uh, would move move us forward, um, first as a nation and then um, as a global community. It just seems to me that um, no one's willing to moderate. Uh, we are pushing our conversations to um, either extreme. I actually um, have problems with the terminology of liberal and conservative, pro- progressive. Um, progressive um, suggests regressive and uh, conservative may um, may disallow uh, one to 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 enter in a posture of introspection and um, and to see life in a static way when in essence um, everyone lives their lives in an inductive manner we are constantly surprised by life we are constantly moving to something new we are dying daily <laughs> so it mm. it it, it, it really becomes troublesome to see human beings uh, this fearful about um, about our own existence. It's interesting. Before we talked a couple hours ago, or about an hour and a half ago, I was watching Nicole Wallace's show on NBC, MSNBC, and Brett Stevens, who's kind of a well. Here you go. I'm going to use one of those terms that you just said is not helpful but he is the kind of like one of the two conser- three conservative columnists for the new york times right that bad guys and he, and he was saying you know he was making a really moving point he was saying that he he read the letter from a birmingham jail today and he said every american should take a few minutes and read that today and he said and he said you know this is my holiday he's like sometimes like people treat this like this is a holiday for african americans from he's like this is part of americana and, it's, and, you know, I thought about that. I was thinking, that is so true. At the same time, as somebody who's written on King, does that flatten King out sometimes? Like, in the sense of, you know, so, like, there was a King that was a lot more of an activist and prophet than sometimes we make space for in public dialogue so we can all have, have King, right? And there's a right. King that is religious, deeply. You've written on King's prophetic consciousness and how much of this comes out of traditional uh, African-American church culture. Right. And and that gets sanitized out too. Right. Because he's got to become a civil saint. Right. So you have to kind of water down the religion, water down some of the, what is some of the activism so that it's a King we can all like get around. Right. Right. What's interesting is, is that King, you know, had a dream and we want to celebrate uh, the dream of racial cooperation and uh, and equal, human equality. We want to celebrate that, but we forget that this gentleman was 39 years of age when he was assassinated. And we forget that um, King lived a nightmare. We forget that he was um, persona non grata um, with the uh, president's uh, administrations with uh, J. Edgar Hoover who wiretapped him, um, there was no sense of privacy, no sense of retreat um, to even think about uh, reflecting on the movement. 
he was, I can just imagine, you know, from one hour to the next, just driven, driven, um, trying to honor God's call on his life. And I think, yes, when we do take these moments once a year um, to celebrate um, Dr. King, we often uh, are, are putting him in a, in a, in a box of heroism and we fail to uh, take, a, take up the uh, our own responsibility to live into the calling into which we we are called. And I think that's not just about taking up King's dream, but it's also to ask oneself, am I called? And what am I called to? Am I called to something that is going to promote human flourishing in the world? Am I called um, to whatever particular uh, social justice cause or, uh, or something of, of, of that sort? Just being a little more introspective, given the fact that someone else became a martyr uh, to, to promote one's freedom, uh, the freedom of others for the collective good. And this is something that didn't always come natural to King, right? I read something recently about how Howard Thurman's influence on his life. And King got stabbed, right, actually, and almost died. It was in Boston, right? Like, was it a book signing? And the woman— Right, I believe it, I believe it was—certainly, um, this is when, when Thurman uh, first met King uh, in a formal way, was after this kind of tragic incident where uh, a mentally deranged woman— um, stabbed him at a book signing. And so uh, being able to, um, be, being forced to um, to a hospitaliza- hospitalization that called him into this space of spiritual reflection because of his uh, demanding preaching schedule allowed him this time to really, um, to think about what, what it is God was kind of doing with his life. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, and Thurman was not the activist King was, right? I mean, he was, I mean, he certainly had a strong sense of justice, but it was, his calling was a different calling, right? I mean, but that book, Jesus and the Disinherited, like King carried that everywhere, right? I mean, he had like a dog-eared copy with him. That's right. I mean, it's just interesting to think about how the complimentary, I mean, sometimes, like, sometimes, I mean, what is it? Uh, the the Franciscans, right? Their Their motto is to be both about, Act, act like action in the world and contemplation, which is beautiful, right? But few of us are wired that way, right? Like we generally have th- these pulls one way or the other. And it sounds like Thurman was someone who helped King be more centered. Centered, absolutely, absolutely. He was certainly his senior, so he wasn't uh, his contemporary in in uh, in respect to age, and so he was what I would call and what I have defined in much of my work as the sagely um, wise one that persons like King uh, would look to for, uh, for, for, for guidance, not only spiritual guidance, but someone who, uh, who was a bit of an icon for him. Gardner Taylor uh, was also that as a preacher. But Thurman had uh, a sensibility coming out of the Boston uh, school, the Boston environment in which King uh, would later find himself um, really having conversations beyond the Southern Black evangelical um, uh, environment in which um, he first began to scratch his teeth in social activism. 
And so being able to be in that Northern context and having conversations with um, white uh, liberals uh, regarding uh, social gospel methods and uh, uh, personalism and uh, having these these newfound experiences uh, coupled with his Southern upbringing, just as Thurman, um, though one, well, Thurman was raised in Daytona, uh, Florida and King, of course, in uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, um, but but really having a similar uh, similar access when there was uh, a period when um, a select few of African American ministers were invited to uh, to Boston Theological uh, School as well as Crozier um, Theological Seminary to make preparations. Yeah, and, and King, I mean, it's interesting because. You find, I would guess, right, a lot of African American preachers who, when when they get for when they go to get you know seminary education, right, like come from traditional, uh, you know, I mean, I, I mean, black Christians when you in, in American society today, when you tend to look at the, demo, the, the the like PRI or Pew studies, theologically they look they resemble in some ways white evangelicals, but politically and culturally not at all. I mean, they're on the, sort of like generally they, the, the cultural and political sensibilities are really different, but there's a kind of traditional piety. Then oftentimes like today, like folks I know gravitate to liberation theology because there's a resonance there. Right. And, and find some fusion of a kind of traditional uh, theology with liberation. But King really drank from the wells of Protestant liberalism. too. He learned a lot from that tradition. Right. He did. He did. Um, I think, to, I think it would be an overstatement to say that um, he baptized himself. He was baptized in the waters of that, with that, and sh- totally shed his his evangelical black evangelical uh, rooting. Um, I don't think he could go back into the South with these new ideas without without having some uh, sensibilities on how to synthesize those 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 those. Thoughts. So yes, the influence was real. Um, Fosdick was a major uh, person that, um, as well as Walter Rauschenbusch, um, were major um, influencers on on King. But um, I think it's it, it would be unfortunate to say that Protestant liberalism um, defined him or re- refined his voice in a way that he lost his own um, understanding or even belief. His his Niburian belief that um, we are, yes, we are thoroughly sinful and um, the li- there are limits to Protestant liberalism that would suggest that um, as we as we as we become more intellectually enlightened, that moral progress is the ultimate or the inevitable um, result from that. And so I think he was sufficiently grounded in this understanding that, yes, you know, we can make progress, but there's something in the in the fabric of humankind that will um, that will not uh, give way to um, complete equity and equality. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess in some ways he's just like like a lot of great thinkers, right? He's a great synthesizer, you know, I mean, an ability ability to kind of eat fish and spit out bones, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, Ben Crosby, John Snyder, and Charlotte Donlin. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. I was struck when you talked about this need to reflect, right? And be self-reflective and, and kings are need. Like, as somebody who teaches preachers at, at a time when, gosh, I mean, we need good preaching, right? I mean, America, it's, it's just interesting. I, I, I've been struck by the number of op-ed pieces I've read lately, or Rowan Williams did a book review, John Milbank, one of Milbank's books lately, you know, there's all these, like, New York Times, Dallas, all these people are writing about the failure of liberalism, right? Like, like Amer the American liberal kind of enlightenment democratic project, it seems like it's a lot more fragile, uh, especially since, because of certain political realities, that it, it just feels like there's more strain on our institute. I, I, I talked with a Eastern Europeanist historian last week she said you know my american historian uh colleagues with in the age of trump and some of the things that happened like wow well, we got great institutions america's you know it's bad but it's not. the but the people that studied eastern europe they're like geez this is when it all goes to hell <laughs> like, like, it's all good one day and the next day you know it's you know like the fa everything's fascist you know it's the handmaid's tower like i think about like what is what's the how do you integrate that sort of stuff into your teaching of preachers of of divinity school students? Is that is that? I mean, I would think that's challenging because they're in grad school. Nobody has enough time, right? And how, I mean, how do you how, how do you encourage them to ask those questions? There are no quick fixes. Um, Howard is a divinity school, so we encourage inquiry and um, uh, and discovery, self discovery, and introspection. And it's not, it's not easy. It's not easy work. And I have to um, check myself occasionally, you know, frequently so that I'm not injecting my own biases in conversations that need to be had that respect the, uh, the varied opinions in the room. And so um, while many would say, okay, you know, uh, take a position, take a hard position, be a hardliner. You know, everybody can't be that. There's, there's, there, there, ha there has to be 
uh, persons who are willing to be moderating voices. Now, I I think, yeah, we can um, try to um, abscond our responsibility to engage our social environment. But if there is no one to be an interpreter who can sit back and say, wow, you make a good point Um, or or say, no, let's 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 process this a little bit more and see where we end up. Is there is there any common ground to be discovered based on um, a dialogue that is being created? And that's where I think we are missing the mark the most. No one's moderating. Why? Why? Why do you think we miss when you say we are you thinking us right exactly I, I would like, say I would say um, yes uh, mo- moderating discussions and facilitating discussions demands uh, requires humility and um, to be su- su- sufficiently humble um, is often mistaken as being meek and uh, mealy mouth and 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 we have to we have to think about um, what what does our future look like if we're talking past one another and no one's listening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's when you say that, it took my mind to this quote from James Cohn's book Martin and Malcolm in America: A Dreamer and Nightmare. And mm-hmm. he, he he it's in this section where he, it's kind of the, the concluding section where he's evaluating both their legacies. And in the section where he talks about how they're both critics of American Christianity. He says, before Martin King, white churches ignored the problem of racism and black churches passively accepted its consequences. Within a short period of time, Martin was able to prick the conscience of both white and black Christians and thereby enlist them into a mass movement against racism in the churches and the society. He made racism the chief moral dilemma, one which neither whites nor blacks could ignore and also retain their Christian identity. And as I today, I was rereading a letter from a Birmingham jail and when he talks about his... I mean, this, this, this disappointment with white Christians, you know I mean? which is real and, and palpable. And, but also people, most people don't realize like Martin Luther King Jr. was kicked out of the biggest black institution, right? Like the National Baptist. Like he was kicked right, out. Right, right, right. <laughs> like, so, I mean, these are these things we forget because as we sanitize King and, and, and we act like, you know, oh gosh, this was like in the next, it was another George Washington in the 20th century. I mean. That's right. That's right. These are, uh, he had hard things to say. Right, right. And became more militant near his death. Yeah, it's interesting. You almost think about the pattern. I read something earlier today about some, somebody had posted something about the spirituality of King, somebody had written on. And they said, you know, like Jesus, he was so open in the beginning of his ministry. And, you know, the parables of the kingdom are all about how the kingdom is mysterious and open everywhere. And then, as you get closer to Jerusalem, you get these parables of grace and the parables of judgment, which corresponds to the impending doom. And it's almost like he gets the, the things get tougher as, as King. I mean, the prescient nature about his own death is scary. Uh, and yet maybe just discerning given the things he's saying. Right. You know, I, I think, I think, yeah, when you, when you really listen and, Take in the visual of his last sermon, um, which um, we refer to as uh, the mountaintop uh, speech, which in essence for me, as I teach homiletics, I see so many uh, of the marks of the classics, well, 
some would say it's more topical than expository, which is which would probably be accurate. But in a real sense, he was preaching himself out of what I would classify as depression. And that mountaintop moment, uh, I mean, no free delivery. Um, clearly, he wasn't feeling well when um, he was invited to come um, to, to, to speak that night. He, he hadn't intended to come, um, but they summoned him. You know, Ralph Abernathy was going to be uh, the speaker that night. But they were like, we want King. We want, we want to hear from him. And so, you know, he was rushed, escorted to the pulpit um, to deliver that last uh, marvelous, brilliant uh, piece of, of, of oratory that um, to look at it this day brings me to tears. Yeah, and this acknowledgement, I might not get there with you. And, you know, I mean, that's, a, that's mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, this is, you think of, Moses not being able to go, you know, like, but, but being, being resolute in the co- conviction that I think that this will turn around. I, I, I truly believe that, um, that there is something better, uh, in view. Um, and it, you know what, what, what is really interesting to me is, uh, when we, when we use the, the imagery promised land, or we think about promised land, we are, we're thinking about this land flowing in with milk and honey, but, we don't often consider that um, there were Canaanites there. And so uh, contending with persons who are in the promised land, I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't achieve victory in order to um, merely celebrate it. You, you walk into uh, a new space, prayerfully wilderness condition in order to continue a fight that uh, I believe has to be continual. And that fight for many African-Americans has been fought with prayer and, uh, and hope. I mean, it's interesting because as we observe this day in the country, when you think about where it's probably observed with most gusto, it's probably in black churches and also in progressive sort of, I mean, enclaves, right? I mean, they're like that you'll have... So, the, so you have the most one of the most religious groups in the country demographically coming together with people who have great esteem for King and his legacy, and yet probably a lot of the language King would use and that's used to commemorate him feels like our second or maybe third language for. And this was, I mean, not that there weren't secular people and socialists in the civil rights movement partnering, you know, with black and white Christians, you know, like, but it, it does feel different today. I mean, like, especially, especially on the coasts, right. Where, where secularity seems rooted, you know, most firmly in this country. Sure. Sure. Uh, I, th- I think, <laughs> I think where, um, I think we're a bit naive. Um, we cannot continue to believe that human beings uh, trust institutions in the way in which they once once did. Um, I think there is enough religious hypocrisy that um, I'm not surprised that um, I'm surprised that more haven't defected from religious communities. 
but um, but it, it it's an indicator that we 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 have thoroughly um, jacked things up. We have uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have really made a mess of the world, and um, I'm afraid that if God doesn't directly intervene in ways that transforms hearts um, or and I'm so, Scott, I'm not so sure that God isn't um, really powerfully at work, even in the silence, it seems, of, um, that many, as many experience such high levels of suffering and confusion. You know, as, as a teacher of preachers, I think about, I, I mean, the sermon is a literary art form, or, or even delivered without notes, extemporaneously, it's an oral communicative art form, right? I mean, it's, right. I mean there is... And yet, I wonder, is it an art form that becomes hard to appreciate? I mean, some art forms become really niche because the culture... You know, it shocks me. My wife and I have opera tickets, and it strikes me the number of people that still come to the opera. It's not probably what it used to be, like, like but it's just... It's amazing that, but it, you can tell, like it's a, it's a big, it's a big. Uh, well, for me, it's a big jump to learn to appreciate it, and it's a beautiful art form. But like, I wonder with a figure like King, who so much of his his best stuff <laughs> is in a genre that people aren't trained to hear. Is that? I, I, I mean, do you think is that? I mean, as someone who teaches preachers, do you, is it? Are they? Are you? Are they laboring in a field where it's harder to do? what people in their shoes have traditionally done because of the difference in the hearer. Yeah, that's exactly um, one of the reasons I, I think we have to um, utilize multiple platforms in order to get the gospel um, uh, out in the world. Um, hip hop artists, I don't know if you've heard people like Lecrae and yeah, even yeah. some of common songs they are preaching sermons. I mean, their lyrics are very sermonic uh, in ways that critique the status quo, but also suggest that God is actively at work and that we can trust this God um, in spite of uh, all the, 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 the darkness that we are experiencing. And so, yeah, so I teach, I teach my students not to do as I do, but to... Uh, really seek to discover their own authentic preaching voices. And whatever that sounds like, does that sound like, uh, you know, does a woman necessarily have to um, um, vocalize as uh, a husky male preacher, uh, uh, use a husky voice as a male preacher might? Or can she, you know, um, if her voice and her demeanor is, is more reserved, does is that any less black preaching? Um, I would beg to differ. I think um, I think while we are um, benefited and helped by emulating uh, some of the greats, I think it. I think the people want to hear us, who we are, what we have to say about um, God's good news to the world. You know, I, I think about. Uh, I feel like there's this uh, tension between kind of preaching for transformation. Or preaching um, grace, right? For lack of a better term, you know, preaching a message. You know, like this kind of. It, there's this old adage, right? The preacher should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And then again, I ask, who's not afflicted? I mean, <laughs> you know, you look at somebody like 
that behaves badly with lots of power. I mean, usually that's there's deep affliction there, right? Like, I mean, these are. Uh, I mean, these are things that you know. I mean, like everyone, everyone probably is. But in this um, sermon, um, you you might you, you probably know a tough mind and a tender heart. Nineteen fifty nine. Okay. Uh, King says, uh, "God is neither hard hearted nor soft minded. Mm. He is tough minded enough to transcend the world. He is tender hearted enough to live in it. He does not leave us alone in our agonies and struggles. He seeks us in dark places and suffers with us and for us in our tragic." prodigality. At times we need to know that the Lord is a God of justice. When slumbering giants of injustice emerge in the earth, we need to know that there is a God of power who can cut them down like the grass and leave them withering like the Greek herb. When most tireless efforts fail to stop the surging sweep of oppression, we need to know that in this universe is a God whose matchless strength is a fit contrast to the sordid weakness of man. Wow. I think about I think about Thurman talking about how these things for the oppressed, you know, that the hey, fear is 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 logical and self preservative, especially when you're oppressed. Hatred even plays a weird role in preserving your dignity, but if these things take over, they ruin you know, like they ruin the the oppressed. That seems like an art form. knowing Howard Thurman uh, has gone on to to say sometimes um, the oppressed become worse than the oppressor. Um, either one becomes like the Romans, or they'll or they'll be destroyed like the Romans. Mm-hmm. And so there's this notion that you know you give me an opportunity to to become free, um, and I will not only take advantage of that. I will um, um, I will possibly displace you and undermine. Your your ability to ever oppress anyone, um, and so there's this there's this real sense that um, no one wants to be under the thumb of another, and people will fight uh, to the death uh, to retain power. I don't I don't know if that that really makes sense, but I understand self preservation is. Uh, is a real a real fact. It's a real reality, and um, making sure that our children are secure, making sure that our tribe is secure, making sure that our financial resources aren't depleted. Um, we are Scott. I mean, I don't, we are selfish. We are really. I think that's the the root of sin: selfishness and self centeredness. And um, would you agree with me? Yeah, I, I think. You know, it's interesting. I love The Walking Dead, and I'm rewatching it right now. Uh, and, you know, like any good post-apocalyptic series, this story is not about the zombies. I mean, they're like window dressing. Like, it's about, like, who are you when all the constraints are away? All the, all the pressure to behave well, to keep your marriage, to keep your house, to keep this, to keep up airs, to keep, uh, you know, every, oh, all right, we all have these things. If I steal this, police are going to come. Or if I defraud this, if I embezzle, I'm only going to do it if I'm sure I can get away with it. But then when everything's gone and there are no more constraints, who are you? And there's this, there's this priest character who says, you know, the living are as bad as the dead. And this one guy goes, they're worse. And they are because the zombies are just mindless. Their frontal lobe is gone. They're just trying to eat. They don't care. I mean, they're, but the real tra- awful nightmarish villains are just people that were copier salesmen or 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 convenience store managers, and then they got to be 
a dictator, you know, like in this post-apocalyptic world. And I think that, is, yes, I think that's absolutely the the case, that there is something that, yeah, that we can, power power differentials can change, right? And you can also be a victimizer in one, a victim in one context and a victimizer in another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our, our, when you, when I think about kind of my existence on, on the globe, uh, as an African American who's who's who was raised in the um, the obscured East Side North Side of Waco, Texas, and have had some of the privileges that I've had to become now a professor at at Howard University, something that I never really thought that would be down the road for me. But I'm very I'm very thankful. It doesn't mean that. Um, it doesn't mean that I uh, I don't endure suffering in uh, another context, but but life has has taught me that if one opens oneself up to what God wants to do in their lives, um, you'll find yourself in more context than you would ever uh, have imagined. Mm. So I'm a father. I'm a professor. I'm a preacher. I'm an author. I am. Uh, I'm a son. I am a person who is uniquely named Kenyatta, mm. and and that means something. Mm. And uh, my father was a pastor. My father was um, disabled, uh, preaching from a wheelchair. That that enabled me to develop a sense of empathy, um, but also mindful that I have a responsibility. Mm. And if we would all kind of look inwardly and think about what is, what is it? Um, what am I responsible for in this life? You know, what is my responsibility? And, uh, if we're able to name that and to live, um, uh, a principled life, can you just imagine how, uh, one or two people doing that would turn the world upside down? Yeah. Yeah. All we need is love, right? Beatles. I mean, so, uh, just in conclusion, I mean, today we celebrate someone who was a preacher. I mean, in the best sense of the word, I mean, from a tradition of great preachers and preaching, I mean, a real prince of the church. As someone who is a preacher and teaches preachers, looking out at the the American landscape, what preachers give you hope? Where where do you look at preaching and be like, wow, okay, this is, um, I'm I'm hearing something here. Wow. Scott, I, I love this question because you're actually giving me an opportunity to uh, say something about the book that um, I've written entitled Exodus Preaching, uh, Crafting Sermons About Justice and Hope, which will be published uh, by Abingdon Press and released in March of, uh, of this year. I will have you back on the podcast in March on the day of the book release. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would love to talk about it because I have a list of names here of persons, uh, African-American preachers who are doing great work. Some of them have had um, privileged uh, privilege to uh, train formally in uh, some of the best seminaries and divinity schools in our nation. And, I mean, just to name a few, Ray Owens, Leslie Callahan, Raphael Warnock, uh, Adam Bond, Patrick Claiborne, Lisa Thompson, Jonathan Walton, uh, leading... Um, Harvard Memorial Church, Luke Powery, uh, the first African-American uh, dean of chapel at Duke University, 
uh, Deborah Munford at Louisville Seminary, uh, Danielle McCray, uh, a new homiletician at Yale Divinity School, Paula McGee, who uh, teaches in Memphis, who's uh, a mega church critic who um, has written a book on uh, T.D. Jakes's uh, relationship to prosperity um, theology. Wayne Croft, a bivocational preacher who um, occupies a Jeremiah Wright senior uh, homiletics chair at Lutheran Seminary, and on and on. There are a number of of young voices that are that give me hope um, as um, as I think about where preaching. Uh, is going and uh, and in whose hands um, this prophetic, priestly, sagely ministry uh, will be uh, has been entrusted. So I'm I'm hopeful. Kenyatta, I'm glad you are because it's a day we ought to have hope. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much, Scott. And we'll talk to you. Well, if not before then, but definitely on the podcast in March. Perfect. Thank you, my friend. Bless you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Kenyatta for coming on the podcast. And thanks again to you for listening. Until next time, friends, fare thee well and keep the dream alive.